Welcome to the 39th episode of our World News Podcast. This podcast is going from July 31st to August 13th. This podcast, along with all other A&E podcasts, are part of Northern Provisions, LLC. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs art and culture take a look at the journal's bulletin from the borderlands a bi-monthly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more check out the freelancers a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Blog, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyzeeducate, or you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyzeeducate, and we will hop into the news. In the South Caucasus, another round of clashes broke out on August 3rd between Armenia and Azerbaijan in the contested Nagorno-Karabakh region. The post-2020 ceasefire violations are common and a permanent diplomatic solution is basically unthinkable at this point. An Azerbaijani soldier, Private Kazimov Enar Rustim, was killed in a fight with, quote, illegal military formations according to Azerbaijan, referring to the Artsakh army. Azerbaijan responded with drone strikes on the positions of the Armenian Artsakh forces, killing three and wounding 14 others. Azerbaijani forces once again utilized their Bayraktar TB2 drones, a system that was heavily used in the recent war in 2020. Offensive operations were later launched, and the fighting culminated in the capture of two Armenian positions and an unknown number of their soldiers. Artsakh President Arik Haryutian has announced a partial mobilization of the nation's military in anticipation of more fighting. He also says that Russian peacekeepers are losing their appeal among Artsakh citizens. Artsakh, Armenia, and Azerbaijan both still claim the region and no formal peace treaty has been signed by the two sides. And again, it probably won't be for quite some time. Nagorno-Karabakh will likely see war once again someday, barring any major political changes in the involved countries. As the situation in the world stands right now, Russia cannot afford to deploy additional resources to the region, so they cannot rely on them to enforce a peace. Moving on to Afghanistan, on the 12th, the Taliban announced the Chinese state-owned company Yellow River Engineering Consulting Company Limited will build a power plant in Afghanistan and also explore the country for gas. The company will also develop an oil field in Shabergang in Zhejiang province. Many experts believe that more Chinese companies will try to move into Afghanistan as the country has rare earth mineral reserves worth an estimated one trillion U.S. dollars. The country could be very valuable to China. The Yellow River deal is the first deal made between a Chinese company and the Taliban since their takeover of the country a year ago, and we could see more in the future. We will take a quick break and we'll be right back. Oh, 
Moving on to Mexico, last week saw a wave of narco violence across northern and central Mexico. On the 11th, men from the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, CJNG, set up roadblocks in Jalisco and Guanajuato to demand the release of a cartel lieutenant known as El Tripa, who they say was arrested. The Mexican government, however, denies that he was ever arrested, but clashes still broke out between the two sides, and businesses and government buildings were also set ablaze later that night across the two states. This led to CJNG declaring a weekend curfew in Baja, California. Cartel members went around during the night burning at least 20 vehicles and enforcing the curfew from 2000 on Friday to 0300 on Sunday morning. The streets of Tijuana, Mexicali, Rosarito, Tecate, and Ensenada were all quiet except for a music festival in Rosarito that went on without incident. Public transportation was suspended and many businesses were closed. The U.S. State Department ordered its employees at the Tijuana Consulate to shelter in place and avoid going outdoors. U.S. citizens of Baja were advised to do the same. Thousands of National Guard forces were deployed to patrol the streets of the state. They were eventually joined by a contingent of 350 Special Forces personnel. At least 19 men were detained in Baja, including three members of CJNG, and at least one person was injured throughout the weekend. Also, on the 11th, a prison riot broke out in Ciudad Juarez between Los Chapos and Los Vehicles that killed two inmates. The riot was probably sparked by the killing of another inmate the day before, and this led to multiple attacks in Juarez that killed 11 people, including a 12-year-old that was shot at a Circle K gas station. Local sources also say a human head was discovered somewhere in the city. 600 federal troops were deployed to restore order to the city on Friday. On the 13th, a group of 167 people belonging to the Pueblo Unido armed group were arrested in Urapan in Michoacan. Pueblo Unido is a militia made up of farmers looking to defend their hometowns from drug cartels. Among the group, 142 rifles, 44 handguns, two grenades, two grenade launchers, and 25 vehicles were confiscated. The group says that they are not a self-defense militia known locally as Auto Defensas, but rather farmers that were forced to take up arms against the cartels. In the United States on the 6th, the U.S. Air Force filed criminal charges against Tech Sergeant David Deswan Jr., an explosive ordnance disposal specialist, for his role in an attack on the U.S. military base in Syria known as Green Village. Green Village is a base in al Tamf, Syria, that is used by hundreds of U.S. military personnel to train Syrian rebels. Deswan is accused of placing explosive devices near an ammunition point and shower facility on April 7th of this year. Four servicemen were wounded in what was initially reported as an enemy mortar attack. He was charged with dereliction of duty, destroying military property, reckless endangerment, and aggravated assault. On the 8th, the FBI executed a search warrant on the residence of former President Donald Trump at his Mar-a-Lago resort in Palm Beach, Florida. The raid was the first of its kind in U.S. history as no U.S. president has ever been hit with a search warrant until this point. The warrant pertained to 11 sets of government documents of which the Department of Justice claims four were top secret slash sensitive compartmented information, the highest classification, four sets of top secret documents, three sets of secret and three sets of confidential documents. The release search warrant says that Trump was under investigation for removing slash destroying government records, destroying slash concealing records with intent to impede, obstruct, or influence, and violating the Espionage Act regarding the 
on authorized use of national defense info. The Washington Post originally cited an unnamed source in saying that some of these documents pertain to information on nuclear weapons that was widely reported by basically every mainstream media outlet. I do want to be clear that that reporting has not been substantiated by named officials. Again, the Washington Post named, didn't even name, cited an unnamed official. So it's very possible that reporting could be true. But at this point, we don't know for certain. These sorts of reports have been wrong before. So we'll really just have to wait and see. It's also worth noting that Trump is being investigated for those three crimes. However, he has not yet been charged with any crimes. Some of those documents also obtained apparently related to the pardon of Roger Stone and information on French President Emmanuel Macron. Two of Trump's lawyers were at Mar-a-Lago during the raid, but they were apparently not actually let inside the residence during the search. Trump was in New York during the event, and he claims these seized documents were all declassified by him during his time in office, but there is some debate on whether or not the correct process was followed, and I don't know enough about it to really make a, a determination for you guys. We will be waiting to see when more information about the event is released, but until then, we're pretty much standing by, but we'll keep you guys updated if we hear anything else. On the 10th, Congressman Scott Perry, a Republican from Pennsylvania, had his phone confiscated by the FBI while traveling with his family. The FBI had a warrant for his phone, and this, of course, came one day after the raid on Mar-a-Lago. In addition to being an ally of the former president, Perry is also a retired Brigadier General in the Pennsylvania National Guard with 39 years of service under his belt. He is an Iraq War veteran and currently serves as the chair of the House Freedom Caucus. He called the actions of the FBI during the taking of his phone and the raid on Mar-a-Lago, quote, Banana Republic tactics. Perry also said his phone was later returned to him after agents took images of it. On the 11th, 42-year-old Ohio man Ricky Walter Schiffer tried to gain entry into the FBI's field office in Cincinnati. Schiffer was wearing body armor and was armed with an AR-15 rifle and a nail gun, and he was possibly influenced by the previously discussed raid on Mar-a-Lago. He fled from the field office after setting off an alarm while trying to enter, and he led law enforcement on a pursuit through three counties. He stopped at a cornfield in Clinton County, Ohio, where he engaged in a six-hour standoff with police. After six hours passed, he raised his gun on officers and attempted to arrest him, at which point he was shot and killed. Schiffer was a Navy veteran that served on the USS Columbia nuclear-powered attack submarine, and he was already known to the FBI for his involvement in the January 6th Capitol riot. We have one question that is from Ryan G underscore photography. You guys should absolutely follow him on Instagram. He has great aviation photography. If you guys are into that sort of thing, definitely give him a follow. Uh, what is the realistic next conflict for the U.S.? Well, to answer the question, I don't see us getting into a large conflict with non-state actors. Uh, and I definitely don't see us getting into a war with Russia. It's, it's just not going to happen. We don't want it. Um, Russia doesn't want it, and they really can't sustain it at this point either. So it just it won't happen anytime soon. I think the next conflict can very possibly be a conflict with China over Taiwan. The Communist Party is not backing down on their plans to take the island. And in the past year, we've signaled multiple times that we will involve ourselves in Taiwan's defense, most notably with Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, specifically in the region as a whole. Um, so in my mind, and I think in the minds of 
a lot of other people that are sort of paying attention to the region. That is probably where we're going to see ourselves next. Don't know when, but I I don't see any other conflicts coming before that. Um, so yeah, that is all I have for you guys this week. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot. You can find this on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, and Pocket Cast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. Please consider supporting us on Patreon again at patreon.com slash analyze educate or at Ko-Fi. And that is all I have for you guys. We will see you next.